Hello, I am Max Mobley, the author of Howard and Debbie, uh, published by Rare Bird Books, coming out February 12th. Uh, it's a domestic thriller, a character-driven story, and we're going to talk about it with my friend here, Eric Tarloff. And this is Eric Tarloff. I'm the author of The Woman in Black, which is also published by Rare Bird, and is due out on March 12th, uh, and it's a book about L.A. in the 50s and... Um, about an actor in show business during the 50s. Uh, and Eric, I'm just going to dive in. I, 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 as you know, because we emailed back and forth, I just enjoyed the heck out of Woman in Black. Thought it was so much fun. I'm no expert on, on old Hollywood, but, uh, but I know a little, and it, and, it, and it just hit all the right spots for me, so congratulations. Oh, well, thank you very much, Max. And I've got to say, your book, well, I hesitate to say I enjoyed it exactly. I found it... <laughs> totally gripping and uh and you had me from page to page from beginning to end so it was very hard to put down not easy to read but very hard to put down thank you thank um, you I, I i get it and i appreciate that uh thank you so much for those kind words i was just going to say what occurred to me reading it is that you were almost like jehovah in the old testament because it raining down misery on your, ah! on your own creations oh that's that i mean i'm we can laugh about it now uh i will say <laughs> In the writing of it, you know, I'm I'm the t kind of uh, author that uh, I just have to be true to the characters and true to the story at all costs. And uh, during some of the darker passages, I I had to steal myself. Going, is that really mm -hmm. what's going to happen? Am I really going to to make these characters go through this? But it really, <laughs> I wasn't putting them through it. It was just sort of what their story was, and it was it was what they were going through. It was what they were going through, and boy, yeah. was it... Well, I, I share your commitment to that uh, in the sense that I don't always like what my characters do, but I, if I feel it's true to their nature, I just have to uh, yeah. accept it. I mean, I, to me, that's what truth in art is. Since, I mean, I, I do mostly make it all up. It's not based on, on real events. So the truth of the story is just the, just the integrity of, of the inspiration in a way. Yeah, uh, very well said. I, I like I like how you said that. I I totally agree. And um and it was hard. And you know, through rewrites and rewrites, you know, I had to relive it. And uh, and I don't know if it was obvious or not, but you know, very little of of the tragedies in the book um, are are in any sort of detail. It's really more the the response to the character the characters go through, uh, or the response the characters have in going through it. Right, I, I I know what you mean. It, there was no sort of the pornography of misery. It was, it, it was the atmosphere. Yeah, it was and, the atmosphere uh, and the reaction. Yeah, and let me ask you because this is something that it's a question I wonder about almost every writer or every every book I read, which is what was the initial impulse? You know what I mean? Uh, usually, there's a little germ of an idea which then has to be teased out, but the germ is. Is is what the French would call a donné. It's just what you're given, what you suddenly think of. And I wonder what yours was for Howard and Debbie. Uh, great question, and I want to ask the same about yours um, because I just the, yours is such a fascinating tale, and the way you tell it is so fascinating. But real quick to answer your question, um, you know, I was working with a few different people, in, and this was in the early days, you know, the sort of Windows ninety eight era. Mm -hmm. uh, so where like chat rooms, which play a role in my story and, uh, and, you know, quote unquote, cyber sex, which is a term no one uses anymore. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> and actually the verb became just cyber. 
Yeah, for a while. Yeah. Hey, let's cyber. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so I I worked with some people who were basically did what what uh, Howard and my character uh, the lead character in my story does, which is um, they would meet someone online. They would meet a female online uh, with a, and they would use different pictures, different pers- persona, basically catfish. Mm-hmm. But it was before catfishing as a term was was coined. Um, right. And then they would go and and. Um, and sort of watch these people and, and in a real creepy way and just kind of see how they, how they handled being stood up and see what they looked like in a bar and just mm. these things that were just, just really, I found repugnant. Yeah, and, and, uh, and so, but it's easy to laugh about it if it isn't you. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to laugh about it if it's not me. And, and, and yeah. Howard, the character this happens, who does this, he doesn't do it out of any sort of maliciousness. He's just kind of a dork and a, an adult. And he's also kind of a, a sympathetically funny character, I hope. Um, mm. But but I was so repulsed by this that I, I felt like there's a story in here somewhere. And, uh, you know, I, I instead of me going for the juggler of making these people who I've known who did this and kind of maybe, you know, attacking them via literature, uh, I ended up finding... Howard Feck, the you know how, the Howard of Howard and Debbie, and and wrote his story. But that was the initial thing was learning that these people did this, and and they were they bragged about it, and that's what just drove me crazy. They thought mm-hmm. what they were doing was the was something you would tell someone. I wouldn't like if I had that dark side to me, I would never tell a soul that I would do such a thing. Yeah, but what's interesting from what you just said is that the initial impulse was actually the MacGuffin rather than the characters <laughs> or even their interaction. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, um, hmm. well, anyway. Yeah, I, mean, well, I was going to say is, you know, I literally, I wasn't sure, you know, I kind of did, you know, initially start this off as like, I'm going to just kind of write this person and then ruin them and then I'll feel better, <laughs> even though it's, I can't physically hurt them, uh, but at least I could write about hurting them or something. And then I, that never happened because I found, because Howard Feck was there kind of, you know. Well, it way. is a kind of pathetic, it is a kind of pathetic role to be in, I think. It is. Right, particularly if it's somebody who has no sexual or social life outside of that, then yeah. there's something so so needy about it that uh, to pile on him, it would almost be gratuitous cruelty. Yeah, right. Mind was, you, you have plenty of gratuitous cruelty. Yeah, in yeah. well, uh, there's definitely, I know, hopefully it's not gratuitous, but there, it is a tough, sad life. And hopefully, you know, the humor cuts through, but it does vacillate between the two. And and uh, and I do, I try, well, I don't know, I tried, but, but I feel like the book, you know, when when things get dark, the humor goes away because it's certainly not stuff to make fun about. Uh, yeah. And then we return to light, but you still had to go through that horror. And it really is, in my mind, a horror book. You know, just, just real quick, I want to add, uh, you know, when I was a young person, I was fascinated with, like, the Universal Studios horror movies, you know, the Frankensteins and all those. Mm-hmm. And, and um, but I also... They, they were tragedies to me. They, you know, most of them. I mean, you know, Son of Frankenstein, maybe not, but, but like the original Frankenstein by James Whale. Um, I just thought, what a tragic figure that monster was. All my my little friends, we were like eight years old or something. They all thought, oh my god, this horrible monster killed him. And I just thought, this poor, poor thing. Yeah, uh, well, if you read the Mary Shelley book, actually, the monster is very pathetic. I, in a way, he's the tragic hero of, uh, yeah, of the book as much as Doctor Frankenstein is. Interesting. And I read that, you know, when I was probably 10 or 12, and so most of that probably just went right over my head, to be honest. I read it at age 69, so it's fresher in my mind. I read it last year. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah, that's a a good recommendation. I I should pick it up again. So so I want to turn that question back to you and Woman in Black, because, um, well, before before you answer the question of what, you know, what was the the, the little germ in your brain that, that made the story come out, but also... 
you write it in such a unique way that grabbed me immediately. I loved it. Um, and I'll have you describe it because you'll do better justice than I did. But I thought it was really, it really worked. And I've seen it in movies. I've never seen it in a book before. So bravo. Well, I, can, I can actually explain that. And the two questions are, in fact, connected. I got the idea for the book, which was a story of a, of a young actor who was such a protean character, such a, uh, such a chameleon in some ways as an actor, that nobody actually could quite figure out who he was as a real person. Everybody saw him very differently. He showed different aspects of himself to everyone he knew. Uh, and I had that and the ending, which I won't go into now, uh, which we won't go into now. Oh, I, I um, promise I won't say a word. Yeah, no spoilers. But in any event, I, those, that mm -hmm. idea or those two ideas, if you like, came to me. That was the spark. Um, and it came from, uh, I had seen a couple of, maybe three or four documentaries, short documentaries about the actors who came of age in the 50s. And there was something about the period. I think, although I didn't articulate this to myself, but because it was the post-war period, it was a real confrontation of generations in the field of acting. You know, there were the people who came back from World War II who had been stars before the war started. And then there were this young generation who came out of, uh, mostly out of New York training. And their styles were so different, and there was a sort of generational confrontation between them. So I think that really gripped me. But I got that idea, the, the idea for this story, close to 40 years ago. And I just couldn't figure out how to tell it. Because the different points of view seemed so crucial to the story I wanted to tell that I, I was just technically stumped. And every once in a while, I'd sort of think, gee, I really ought to tell it because I found the story very interesting, you know, and, and sort of it, it, it was like it was always sort of tickling my ear. You should write this, but I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And then about two years ago, I noticed on my bookshelves Gene, the late Gene Stein's book about Hollywood. And which I still haven't read, by the way. I bought it, and I'll read it eventually. But I just thought, that's the way to do it. Do it as an oral history. So that, in fact, it's a series of interviews with people who knew my protagonist. And interestingly, the protagonist never really speaks except through other people's memories of him. But we get this kaleidoscopic view of, of who the character was. Yeah, and, and I'm just uh, going to interrupt real quick. So I want to say that, that, um, that I wondered about that, like, you know, I, as I got into the early parts of the book, I'm going, okay, so, so we're going to, this is the format and, and I'm, I'm never going to, we're never going to have a chapter that is from Chance Hardwick's perspective. And I wondered like, oh, that'll be interesting. And you know, uh, he came to life so well through the telling of the people. Oh, who great. Thank you. I mean, that was my hope that even though the, the separate parts might conflict every once in a while, a three-dimensional character would kind of emerge. Very much so. I mean, I, yeah, I have 37 different people talking about him so, yeah. and covering him almost from birth to death. So it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it was hard to find the different voices, but I felt as these people talked about him, they were also talking about themselves, and it just gave it a sort of three-dimensionality. At least that was the hope. That was the intention. So was Gene Klein's book written similarly? But it's not. Yeah, well, it's a, it's not a novel. It's an actual oral history, yeah. and I've I mean I've read a few, and I always find them find them fun to read because there are so many different voices. Precisely because there are so many different voices. So uh, yeah, it's, once I once that idea occurred to me, and it really was one of those, like, as the Victorians would say, a bolt from the blue. You know, once I thought, ah, I can do it that way. The thing just flowed. It was it was as if 
a key had turned in a lock and the door opened. Yeah, and and you know, you I think as a reader, you know when the author is hit the vein, you know, uh, yeah. and it very much read that way. So so again, just great work. Uh, and you know, and it reminded me a little bit. You know, obviously, I'm not like I say, not well versed in Hollywood, but it reminded me of Reds, the movie Reds, in the beginning of that film. Mm. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Set up the character. I mean, yeah, the other movie analog might be Citizen Kane. I, I I'm so embarrassed to say I've never seen Citizen Kane. Oh well, you 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 should. <laughs> You should uh, stream it today. I thank you. It's it's always on like a list. It's on like a short list, and then I, you know, either it's too late or too tired, or I don't know. It's what. one of the key works of cinema. You, it really it deserves a it deserves a viewing. Yeah, uh, but it's also interviews about somebody with all, a number of people who worked with him. Yeah, it worked really well. Now you also bring in you know real Hollywood sort of history and real Hollywood characters. So you know how what I was interesting to hear from a writer's perspective how you balanced fiction with real life people well i always privileged the fiction but i wanted to get the details right so i mean some of it i lived through my father was a writer uh, screenwriter in the 50s so i grew up in la for at least part of my youth he was blacklisted so we fought, we moved to england at a certain point but um it was a world that i grew up in so it wasn't it wasn't like alien territory and then i did research wherever i needed i needed to find out information uh, so, so you grew up. In, sorry for interrupting, but you grew up in, in in Hollywood at least for a spell. It sounds like. Yes, yes, for the first ten years of my life, and then like one or two other years scattered. And I'm just interested about the, how your father got caught up in the whole McCarthyism blacklisting thing, which is such a, a you know a black mark on Hollywood, which has. Yeah. Lots of well, somebody <laughs> named him. Somebody named him in a HUAC hearing, and he was subpoenaed, and he refused to name names, and that was it. I mean, like the next day, he was a writer on a what was then a hit. TV show called um, called I Married Joan. I know, I like, know of that show. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, he was he was a staff writer on it. And he was fired the next day. His agency said, "We're firing you," and he said, "That's odd because you work for me." But anyway, they, <laughs> they they severed that connection. So that happened, I think, in 1952 or 53. Um, and we were we were in fairly rough financial shape for a few years thereafter. But um, anyway, that. I did live through, it wasn't like show business was totally, and also I, I of course worked in show business myself for, for several decades. So, uh, it wasn't totally alien territory. Wow. Um, and, and so, so how much, and you said you moved to England, um, and, and did that shape your writing style or anything, or you as a writer? I, it's very hard for me to know. I mean, I, I read a lot, but I would have read a lot in, on, either continent. So I don't, it's yeah. hard, hard to say, but I think, I, I guess I'll say this living in two different countries, growing up in two different countries probably does kind of expand one's vistas without one even being aware of it. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of osmotic process where you just take stuff in without even knowing you're taking stuff in. Yeah. And it all ends up somehow coming out through the pen in some way. Right. In my I opinion. think maybe it does, but I, I guess any life does. I mean, any sure. set of life experiences, whether you write like Saul Bellow where you're, you'd simply portray your characters in a book. I mean, portray your friends in a book and thereby lose your friends or you just make them up. It's, it's still, you're informed by what you've seen and lived through. Now I had a question about your book because it actually wasn't clear to me until I would say about three quarters through where your sympathies lay because both your main characters are, are terribly victimized. And at the end it's clear 
who you cared more about of the two and who you blamed more of the two. But did you know all along? No. And I'll say, like, again, not not to spoil anything, as I was approaching the ending, and, you know, I don't know if it was like this for you, uh, but... But I wasn't sure how it how it ended for probably the first. That's, half that was going to be my next question. Okay, tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't sure how it was going to end, you know, until I got at least halfway, and then as I as, as you know, it's sort of archaeological. I have that archaeological perspective about writing, where you know you sort of just uncover you know all the stuff that's not the story, and then the story is is kind of sitting there to be to be captured. And as I started to reveal myself again, it was another heartbreaking moment for me. Um, mm. You know, my sympathy lies with with both characters strongly. I think the the main difference was, um, you know, for you know, circumstances that unfold in the story. You know, Debbie. Both characters go through hard times. Um, Debbie never really recovered from hers, and never really was able to get help from hers. Right. Uh, and so that, you know, that sealed her fate. Uh, but my sympathy for them is is really pretty much equal. It's kind of like you know, I, I mean, like in the Frankenstein movie. Going back to that, my sympathy is entirely with the Frankenstein monster and very little for Doctor Frankenstein. There's no real Doctor Frankenstein character except maybe the the the, the bad people that do the bad things in the story, um, if you will. But um, so you know, I love them both, and uh, and I was rooting for them both, and and there was even but at a time, the end you have to root for one or the other. <laughs> you do, and, and there was a time. You're absolutely right, and and there was a time when I was just trying to make the outcome different, and it, and you could just tell it was disingenuous and it wasn't. That's hard. very interesting. I, you know, it's funny. I was kind of rooting for a happy ending, and at the same time thinking it can't happen. That would just violate. Yeah, everything we've come, we've experienced already. Yeah, and, and I also, by the way, I thought the tenderness with the baby was really not only sweet but kind of redemptive. Thank you. Yeah, and and that was you know I would say it was intentional to do that, but but I felt the redemption was to be found, and and I, that part when I wrote that part of the story, I had a, a two year old, so I was living that life. So uh. I, I knew, <laughs> you know, so I did my research just by by walking out of the out of the writing room every evening. Um, hmm. But but yeah, you know, children have that wonderful redemptive quality, and uh, yes, and yes, and I and I I I believed Howard's attitude toward her. I mean, her, his feelings about her and the way they expressed themselves, and that it was important that that be conveyed on a kind of visceral level, not just be described. And I think uh, yeah, thank it. you, and, and you know, and it, it did it it. I mean, it changed me. I don't know if you have kids. Um, uh, I, I have a son, and now I have a granddaughter. Oh wow! Yeah, who's about the age of uh, of Howard's child? <laughs> nice, yeah. Uh, so you know, how, you know, they'll, they'll, they just change you, and and usually for the better. Um, I don't know. Actually, I mean, unless you're like a, just a young parent who didn't want the, the child to begin with, it always changes you for the better. And uh, you know, not to go, not to spoil anything, but unfortunately, you know, not all the characters had the opportunity to experience that, and it was really a shame. And um, you know, and I also there's an element of it that that is sort of a, a there's a feminist side I feel like to the story, even though you know these terrible things happen. Uh, but but Debbie's a very strong character; she's very powerful. Um, it was written long before the Me Too movement and any of that. But um, you know, it just shows the the I feel like it's it sort of there's some social social commentary about the plight of just being born a woman in the West. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's true. I also think, in a way. Other than the tenderness about the child, and again, I won't—I don't want to—I won't give away any plot points, but 
there seemed to be an extra energy. I'm not accusing you of anything in <laughs> in the revenge in the revenge uh, passages. Yeah. Uh, well, in the early revenge passage. I, I mean, in the early revenge passage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I wanted it, it. I needed it. I needed the revenge to happen. That was my feeling. That it was almost cathartic. <laughs> it was absolutely cathartic, uh, Eric. Well said. <laughs> yeah. It was absolutely <laughs> like we're going to get these sons of bitches. <laughs> Just hang on, on Debbie, and uh, and we did. <laughs> you go for it, girl. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we did, and 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 it was. You know, and and I also felt like you know I owed it to the reader. I'll be honest. I don't I don't normally write mm-hmm. that way. I don't feel like I owe anyone anything. I, except I owe to the story. You know. Um, yeah. No. No. That that was absolutely my impression and my response. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, let me ask you a slightly more personal question, which is: when you were writing the harshest part of this, did it affect your home life? Uh, well, did you emerge from your desk in a dark place because of what what you were putting your characters through? Uh, Ultimately, I think you'd have to ask my wife and kid that, but I will uh-huh. say that I I would absolutely leave my my desk, uh, yeah, in a dark place, like you said. I would be sad. I would be depressed. I would be morose. Um, I would, and I would still make sure I got in there the next day. And then you know how it is. I don't know if you do the same thing, but you know, you go back a couple thousand words and to, to that's kind exactly of, how I do it. Yeah, keep going. And boy, I mean, I was. I am not exaggerating when when I say I was in tears at times. Mm. Uh, the story, and I was also in joy at times, like when we talk about, you know, Howard and the child, and I was absolutely in joy, um, and I was in fear, and, and I feel like, you know, I, you know, that's how I come about this, I'm sure you probably do too, but, you know, I feel all the things the characters are feeling, except for the, the real nasty ones, where, where I try to, yeah. I, I, I try to feel it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not a, a kicker of dogs, so if my character kicks a dog, <laughs> I feel that, anything other yeah. than just, but I have to, to try to make it real. What about you? Well, I've talked to I've talked to actors friends about this, and it's interesting because they have to feel the characters they're portraying. They have to internalize the emotions of that character. But if we do our job honestly and right, we have to internalize and experience the emotions of every character we create if we want to do it right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you have yeah. to adapt that sort of you know Teddy Eels, the main bad guy in the in the story, mm-hmm. and and I did have to sort of adapt his his mannerisms and his way of speaking and his outlook toward the world. And, and, uh, and it was painful. And I drew, you know, I, I, I lived most of my life as a working musician. So you see all kinds of things playing in, 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 in rock and roll clubs. And mm-hmm. so I was able to draw on some real scary, bad people. Bad dudes. Yeah. yeah. Real bad dudes to, to kind of help, to help get me there. Uh, what about you? I mean, you most your, your characters aren't anywhere like, as despicable as, as some of mine, but you know, no, you, no, but there are some people, well, what's interesting, I think, what I hope is my protagonist isn't a completely admirable or a nice human being. I mean, I ended up liking him a lot, but he, he has a way of abandoning people and abandoning situations, which I really can't quite approve of. Um, and then there are people who are just, who are just a little scuzzy because that's sort of what show business can be like. Right. Um, I, you know, I found if I could hear the voices, I sort of got the people in some way. I mean, I felt I felt an identity with them. Not that I necessarily liked them or would want to be them, but I, I sort of, I got how they occupied space. And, that, and I, again, it's such a, it's such a vague way of explaining this, but it's impossible to explain it to someone who doesn't quite do it. But I don't necessarily see their faces uh, when I write them, but I feel them. I feel their presence. 
I know where, if I'm writing a scene, I know where people are sort of standing or sitting. Yeah. Um, and how they, uh, what kind of social impact they have on the other people around them. And that once I get that, I sort of feel I've got it. You know, anything? interesting that you say that, because with Howard and Debbie, uh, I obviously go to, 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 I go into much detail about what they look like. And in the book I'm working on now, I, I haven't even gone there, and I don't feel, I haven't missed it. And and you're you you do a light touch with Chance. You definitely describe him, and then you need to because he's a this beautiful heartthrob actor. But a lot of characters don't get much of that. So what's your, what, what's your take on all of that on describing the physical attributes? Well, again, this you know it's dictated by the work you're doing. Uh, I would say in a, in an oral history, you don't get a whole bunch of description of, of yeah. people unless whoever is talking feels a need to describe somebody. Uh, in my other books, I think I do fairly elaborate physical description. It just seemed, if I did it here, it would be a kind of violation of the frame. Uh, that's very true. Uh, that's a nice out. To yeah, well, <laughs> um, I, mean, I don't feel incapable of doing it. I just didn't feel it was appropriate in this no, particular right. book. But what about when you read books in general, when you're reading a story? I mean, how much are you looking, how much do you feel the writer owes the reader to describe what that character, like how tall they are, the color of their hair, the color of their eyes, whether they're you know, I, you know, I think vividness matters, and if you can bring the scene to life vividly, it's. A, you know, I mean, Hemingway once said, you know, if you know what the entire mountain looks like, you only have to describe the top of it, <laughs> and it'll still come. You'll still convey it. So I guess that's sort of been a guiding light for me. You know, Ralph <laughs> Ellison once said. You, he said, if, if Hemingway tells you something, you can trust it. And it's interesting, because I don't know that he was necessarily a big Hemingway fan, but I, I do think that's probably true. Hemingway's observations tend to be pretty reliable. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, my, my version of that is, you know, am I missing it? Do I miss it? And, and in books I read, I, when, it's, when it's barely touched on or not touched on at all, I invariably don't miss it. Um, there are, there, you know, there's rare occasion when I do, and in the, the stuff I'm working on these days, um, you know, I think I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm not conscious of what I'm writing. You know, you kind of hit that unconscious space where you're sort of, your head is poked into another universe and, uh, and you're looking all around and capturing it. And, and I, I haven't missed it in the act of writing it. And then as I go back and read it, I haven't missed it. And then I'm, you know, sort of wondering like, do I need to do this for the reader? But, but so far I've resisted and I'm just trying yeah, to, Yeah, I think that's a good test. Um, I mean, I, you know, if, if you get the right adjectives, you don't need too many. Uh, <laughs> well said. Yeah. Right. So, so we got a couple minutes left. I just want to ask you, what's your writing process like? Because um, obviously there was a fair amount of research. I guess. Well, maybe it wasn't research, just you knowing Hollywood was a requirement to write this well, book. Well, I did some research, too. Uh, but the pro I work in the morning. I probably um, – you know, somebody once asked John Cheever why so many writers were alcoholics. And he said, well, you've got to do something in the afternoon. So true. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't drink in the afternoon most days, but um, I work in the morning and I don't usually, unless I'm really like close to finishing something or really hit a hot streak, I usually stop and don't work after lunch. Okay. Um, but yeah. when it's going well, it's really exciting to get to my desk every morning. I, yeah. I have to say, and with this book, I just couldn't wait to get back to it every morning. It was, and are you it was thinking about at night? Are you, when you, are you go to bed going, now this needs to happen, or how am I going to solve for this, or not? Or are you trying not to think about it? Sometimes, but, you know, I, I used to be a runner. I don't run anymore because I, I hurt my feet too much, but I go for long walks every morning, and I often do the day's work on the walk. 
And then when I get to the computer, it's almost an act of transcription rather than creation. Interesting. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, you know, if, if I'm trying to figure something out, I'll, I'll definitely think about it. But I, if I find myself writing the story while I'm, you know, lying in bed before I go to sleep or while I'm on a hike or something, I try, even though it's engaging as heck and I'm enjoying it, I try to stop myself because I'm like, this is not the time to write this. You know, wait, you know, wait till you're in front of your desk. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and let, you know, and sort of that, that, concept of holding your fire and what I mean by hold it is not don't shoot it's you know contain it hold it and wield it appropriately and so I need yeah, to well I'd, I like to think you're actually but you're 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 putting the ordinance in the in the in the weapon when you're not uh, thinking consciously about it so yeah. that when you actually get to your desk you can there's something there when you pull the trigger yeah, and, and I agree I, th- I think I, we've maybe kill this metaphor for good, but, <laughs> but, I, but I think we're kind of saying the same thing. Like if I find myself, you know, writing the actual words and this is how I want that sentence to go. I, then I, then I, it, those sentences never make it onto the page. They only are in my head when I'm not doing something. And, and I just stop. I'll tell you one exception for me every once in a while, an idea, either when I'm lying in bed, once when I was on an airplane, when something was so compelling, I just reached over, got a pad of paper and wrote it down. I wrote a, a whole scene of not this novel, but the previous one, um, on an airplane, just because I thought if I don't get this down, I may lose it, and it's 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 vital. Yeah, and that does happen every once in a while. And then, yeah, yeah, that has. To, I have run back to the studio and said I got to write this down, or or all of a sudden I'll have this epiphany of well, that's the, there's this character I've not brought in yet, and that's that's sort of the catalyst for what happens next. And then I will like say that concept over and over in my head like five times, so I I don't forget it over my nightly glass of gin. Just, yeah, well, there's, there's a story Robert Shaw told about um, waking up in the middle of the night with a brilliant idea for the play he was working on, and he leaned over, grabbed the sheet of paper, you know, still bleary-eyed, wrote something down, went back to sleep, and the next morning when he looked at it, it said, write this down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like, uh, that's, uh, the musician's version of that is, you know, a young Paul McCartney meeting Bob Dylan somewhere in, in the States, and they were partying, and of course they were, you know, partying, partying, and... Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, Bob Dylan explained to Paul McCartney the meaning of life, and Paul went to write it down. And the next day, he looked at the piece of paper and it said, there are five things. Yeah, I have heard this story. It's a very funny story. Yeah, that's it. Uh, well, I think we're out of time. I really enjoyed this, Eric. Thank you so much. Con- again, congratulations with the woman. All right, Black. thank you, Max. And congratulations to you, too. I wish you nothing but huge success with Howard and Debbie. Thank you very much. And likewise, sir. <laughs>